0: Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. I'm Juan Zarate, chairman and co-founder of FIN. Welcome back. On this episode, we talk about 2020 trends to watch, and we talk with three of our great FIN experts. So listen up. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues.
1: Organizational structures as a key component
2: for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They
3: don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the, on the money laundering vulnerability.
0: President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been, prove it. With us are Eric Lorber, Gail Fuller, and Tommy Iverson. Three Finn vice presidents, three former senior treasury officials, and I would say not only three great colleagues, but three great experts in the space of financial integrity. What we wanted to do with you today is talk through some trends we're watching and monitoring for 2020, things we think you might want to keep an eye out for, and to get some insights from some of our great experts who are working with clients around the world to better financial integrity. Guys, good seeing you. Good being with you.
1: Thanks, Great to be here,
0: Juan. Um, Let's start first with uh, giving the audience maybe from each of you, one sort of key trend, key sets of issues that you're gonna be watching you think uh, the, the audience needs to be aware of for 2020.
2: Eric, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Juan. Um, it's great to be on the podcast again. Uh, happy, happy to be here with uh, my colleagues, Tommy and Gail. In terms of a specific trend that I'm watching, um, I'm watching sanctions and shipping. Uh, I know that there's been a lot of activity uh, by OFAC, by the State Department, and by other U.S. governmental agencies over the last few years, especially in the last year, targeting shipping. But what I really think you're seeing is this coalescing around the idea within the U.S. government that shipping is one of these really key nodes in the same way that financial institutions were, are and were uh, a few years ago, where you can do limited sanctions targeting in ways that have outsized impacts. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that over the last few months, You've seen a number of significant actions taken against shipping companies or entities that have been heavily reliant on shipping companies. Right here, I'm thinking of the September designation of Costco Dalian and Costco Dalian Management. And everyone was paying close attention to this designation when it came down. These two entities were designated in part for providing services uh, for or, or transporting Iranian origin crude.
0: And Eric, these are Chinese uh, entities.
2: These right? are Chi- major Chinese entities. In no. fact, Do- uh, Costco, the parent company, which was not designated as one of the world's largest shipping companies. Um, and there's a, been a major focus both in terms of designation activity and advisories over the last year on this shipping space. Um, I think the reason I focus on this as a trend is... As you see the administration search for ways to continue to ramp up pressure on Iran in the maximum pressure campaign, as you see the administration double down on its efforts to target the Maduro regime in Venezuela, they're going to figure out, try to figure out and try to disrupt how these regimes are moving their resources around the world, and they're going to focus on shipping as a primary means to do that. So if I'm in the shipping space right now, I'm thinking, wow, I need to have all my ducks in a row from a compliance perspective, And if I'm in the corporate space and I'm using shipping companies, I'm thinking I need to know who these shipping companies are, what they're doing, where their ships are going, and what my potential exposure might look like.
0: And I think, Eric, just to put a fine point on what you said, I think the focus on shipping also gives uh, policymakers, folks at OFAC, the ability to focus on sanctions evasion, right? So it's another means of getting at typologies and ways that Corporate actors, uh, you know, illicit actors are trying to get through and around sanctions. It's also another way to um, find areas of convergence or nexus between programs. You mentioned Iran and Venezuela. You, I think we're going to see more and more convergence of different sanctions programs. And one way that that materializes is to find these nodes, uh, whether they be banks or shipping companies, uh, transport services, you know, money laundering uh, services that that provide that sort of ligament between actors, networks that are targets for the US government.
2: Yeah, I think that's right, Juan. And I'll actually add just one more point to that as well, which is I think US regulatory and enforcement agencies have really raised the expectations for compliance related to transportation companies and those doing business with them, right? So over the last year and a half, you've seen a number of shipping advisories in different programs, North Korea, Iran, right? So there's this level setting that's been increasing over the last year and a half and an expectation that goes with it to say, hey, here's what you need to look for and you better do that. And if you don't, there's going to be some enforcement activity or some negative consequences that, that come. That's great.
3: And if I can add on the the
0: shipping which This is Tommy Iverson by the way. Tommy, just want the the listeners to know you're you're, you're a I podcast
3: am. virgin. So this is your your inaugural podcast and we're very happy to have you this on. This is my my inaugural uh, broadcast and it's it's great <laughs> to be here. And to to echo the the um the point on shipping, you know, Finn, we did a roundtable round table on innovation in Paris in January. Um, and I was interested and surprised to hear that the issue around issues around shipping came up quite a bit um, in talking about you know combating illicit finance broadly, also specifically on the need to both use information available within financial institutions, but also their ability to leverage and access information held outside, whether it be by you know, certain authorities or, or other kinds of aggregators and, and people, databases that that contain this information. So yeah, the shipping angle, I thought was a very interesting aspect. Of that yeah. Sort of the whole maritime
0: industry sort yes. of getting pulled into this.
3: Yeah. Gail, um,
0: welcome back. Uh, last year we did sort of, a, a, a podcast like this. I think there was a great, Great uh, listener demand for your insights and your voice. Uh, just so you know, there was great feedback. But in any event, um, you've been doing a ton of work on not just thinking about what risk looks like in the environment, but how we're thinking about new technologies, data. You know, What, what are some insights, or some trends, some issues that listeners should think about for 2020?
1: Thanks, Juan. And thanks for having me back on the podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> There's going to be
0: more of it, Gail, we hope. More of it.
1: So I'm going to go a little bit rogue One, I'm going to do two, actually, if that's all right. Totally okay. And the first one I feel like we need to hit on just quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're talking about 2020 trends, this is a big one, but I know that you're going to be diving deeper on it with some of our other colleagues in the future. So the first one is the, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS. So for listeners who aren't familiar with it, this is an interagency process or committee that reviews pending and completed foreign investments in the United States for national security concerns. And the reason I think this is so important to keep in mind for 2020 is that there were some major expansions to the scope of the program that were announced back in 2018 that just became law in February 2020. And so now as a result, there's a huge, hugely expanded set of investments that are potentially subject to scrutiny under this process. And so Foreign investors, domestic companies that are looking at potential offers from different foreign investors, investment funds, venture capitalists—these are all different stakeholders that need to be really focusing more on the cifius process.
0: Absolutely right. I mean, just to put a fine point on that, I think we we are going to not only have uh, probably f- future podcasts on this issue, uh, we're going to be doing much more work in the space. Um, one of the interesting things from a geopolitical perspective to to watch and. Those who who listen who are interested in geoeconomics and geopolitics may be aware that uh, the US government has put out a white list uh, with respect to jurisdictions that are deemed to to have a similar CFIUS process and where there is cooperation and information sharing with the US government, enough confidence. Right now, that list is short. It's Canada, Australia, and the UK. It starts to look a lot like the Five Eyes, those of you familiar with the intelligence community. Uh, New Zealand's off the list, but I think it's has started to create um, a big, uh, some de- demand signals uh, for some countries to want to get on that list, to have uh, sort of, if not pre-approval, at least a sense that they are more acceptable than not in that CFIUS process. So that's something to watch, too.
1: Yeah, definitely. It has relevance Certainly not just for the U.S. community, but broader, both in terms of the impact of the CFIUS program itself globally, and also on the rise of other CFIUS-like programs elsewhere.
2: Can I weigh in on this for, sure. for just a second? It's a, a broader comment about the context of this. So I actually started doing CFIUS work um, seven years ago, eight years ago, 2012, 2013. And I remember- you How could, old are you, Eric? Like 14? I'm, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Much younger, many 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 fewer gray hairs than I have now. Um, And I remember talking to clients and talking to lawyers in the field and asking, you know, do you know what CFIUS is? And there would be maybe one or two people who would say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Don't really know how it works, but I've I've heard of it before. Fast forward, I I was uh, part of a conversation uh, just a couple days ago with young lawyers uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And I asked that same question. I said, who here knows what CFIUS is? And probably 85% of the people in the crowd just raised their hands and were able to give me, you know, succinct, concise and impressive discussion, uh, you know, definition and discussion of the process. And I think it's just been a, a radical and important shift in the way that US, the United States views investment security over the last even just two or three years. Yeah, you see that with the national security community too.
0: What was once seen as a very esoteric niche process, you know, headed by the Treasury is now seen as a much more central part of national economic security and strategy.
1: Well, and accordingly, the scope, again, of what they're looking at has really expanded. So it's not only including controlling investments by foreign actors, but non-controlling stakes and non-controlling positions that foreign actors might take in a U.S. company. And it's also including things like real estate or um, companies that deal in personally identifiable information. I think the interesting case we talked about a little bit recently was related to... um, Grinder, which is a dating site, and that was actually something that was flagged for CFIUS review because of the amount of personally identifiable information of U.S. citizens that was put onto the site. Mm-hmm. So things that you really wouldn't expect being in the scope of a national security review, sort of on their face, mm-hmm. are coming under the spotlight of the CFIUS program.
0: Okay. Gail, you said you had two. Let's go to the yeah. second one quickly. Yes, and thank then, you. And then, Tommy, I'm coming to you next. Um, I'm ready.
1: <laughs> so the second one I've got here is technology related to artificial intelligence and machine learning in the banking sector and how this is being used to transform in particular transaction monitoring So what we're used to in the transaction monitoring space is really these very static rules-based or threshold based systems But increasingly there's a push to use new technologies again artificial intelligence machine learning driven technologies to reduce these sort of false positives that make these systems so expensive and inefficient to run, but also the false negatives that get banks in trouble. And this is kind of happening in two waves, and we're starting to see progress on both fronts. I think of the first wave as really being using these technologies to look at customer behavior and more finely segment your customers and build out profiles of what expected customer behavior looks like. Because of course, banks are already supposed to be looking at reporting not just suspicious activity, but unusual activity. But to do that, you have to understand what does usual versus unusual look like for your customer. And to do that in a more meaningful way than just based on whatever they tell you at onboarding, which is pretty slim information usually, you can use some of these tools to do fine peer groupings and comparisons of behavior to get a profile of expected behavior that you can then in turn use to sort of enhance the way that you set the thresholds or parameters for the rules. Mm -hmm. The second is really taking these technologies to the next level and moving past rules-based or threshold-based monitoring entirely and looking at algorithmically driven behavioral modeling type of scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing movement on both of these, and I think it's really interesting and exciting. There's some pilots happening around the world that are, you know, challenging the norms on transaction monitoring. And then I think another reason why I wanted to highlight this as a trend to keep an eye on is because there are a lot of important challenges that, any bank faces when they're trying to go down this path, be it the first wave or the second wave. Um, you know, There's the ethics of using artificial intelligence and ensuring that we don't create some sort of impenetrable black box that somehow reinforces and institutionalizes human biases. But then there are also a lot of policy-related considerations around data, data privacy, data nationalization, localization.
0: Mm-hmm. And you get to the point of explainability, which a lot of the regulators are looking at. We, of course, at Finn are trying to do a lot of work in the space um, with one of these pilots here in the United States, looking at what a utility-like model might look like for transaction monitoring. Uh, we've written about this a good bit and we've done a good deal of outreach. And, and Tommy, you've mm-hmm. led a lot of our strategic outreach around the world. You're talking to regulators. Um, we did a podcast actually from London right after a joint Finn rusi conference yeah. to look at some of the issues, very issues that Gail was talking about. The, conflict of regimes around how we think about privacy and and data and data sharing and data localization and the need for enterprise-wide risk management and and all of those sort of tensions that are arising. Um, From your perspective, Tommy, given everything you're seeing and and sensing, what what are some things that folks should be looking at in 2020?
3: So I think that the the top thing on my mind is very much related to what Gail was speaking about uh, around um, innovation and technology. Um, I'm very... Interested to see what happens in the kind of policy and regulatory space, you know, especially with with certain key jurisdictions and financial centers that have, for a number of years, you know, been sending very positive messages around, you know, openness to um, innovation and welcoming um, application of new technologies, so long as it's responsible and. Um, sending messages of, you know, wanting to have an open dialogue and communicate around these things. You know, I think we're getting to a point where there really needs to be more kind of action behind that. Um, I'm hoping that those same jurisdictions are not just sending the the right messages, but, but will actually use this year to really take more steps forward, um, including around pilots. Um, so, you know, more pilots, more robust pilots, uh, maybe pilots with more um, more participants. Um, also, you know, increasing communication around these issues, mm-hmm. um, not giving necessarily certainty, but at least kind of, you know, adding some support and maybe a little bit of clarity around what the expectations are. Um, you mentioned explainability. What, what exactly um, does explainability mean to the eyes of the supervisor and and the authorities that are really the ones um, that are judging what what's okay and what yeah. you know what's going to pass muster um, in this space at a, at a global level, you know we've seen important messages come out of um, the FATF the FATF Secretariat um, around you know not endorsing a specific technology but coming to the point where there's an acknowledgement that technology needs to move forward and is a very important, has a very important role in the future of combating financial crime. Right.
0: And, and the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, um, has signaled that they want to get more involved in issues related to the digital economy, yes. digital identity, for example, what the norms
2: look yes. like.
0: Um, so I, I think that's really interesting because they're they're stepping forward. We saw the virtual asset interpretive note last year, mm-hmm. so FATF really beginning to push the international standards. And then, as you said, Tommy, the regulators and jurisdictions having to respond to what that actually
3: means in practice. Absolutely. And and the FATF, you know, a couple of years ago already recognized the importance of public-private dialogue mm-hmm. across AML CFT issues. I think that you know it's going to be equally important now to apply that same open dialogue and focus on communication specifically to technology and adoption of innovative approaches, because there are lots of areas that require, you know, authorities improving their understanding of what these technologies are and what they can do and what they cannot do around ethics and and movement of data and all of these very specific um, new issues and questions that are are arising. And the
0: requirements around the the technology itself.
3: And how that fits in with within with a regime that was established in you know 40 plus years ago exactly
0: so we're we're right in the middle of the modernization of the aml cft regime in both practice given new technologies mm-hmm. and in terms of regulatory scope the, the other thing tommy i think is interesting and you've pointed this out in the public private dialogues is not just the technology community being brought to the table and the communications there but also the privacy absolutely. community because of the issues around data data security absolutely yeah. All right. Well, that, that's fascinating. I think we could go on for for hours on each topic, um, but let's close out the podcast uh, with maybe a bit of a lightning round around a wild card. You know, what what is a what is something to watch in twenty twenty? We're not talking about black swans because black swans in in theory are unknowable, right, Gail? Um, so true. It's so true. But the question is, what is what is something that could be disruptive or challenging? Uh, over the course of 2020 that people should watch that affects uh, the financial integrity domain that we care so much about. Um, Gail, I'm going to start with you.
1: I would say that the U.S. presidential election is a bit of a wild card um, because there's been a lot of ink spilled about the current U.S. administration's intensive use of economic tools like sanctions, export controls, and tariffs. And while these tools aren't going to go away regardless of the outcome of the election, and particularly sanctions aren't going to go away, there could be you know, a certain shift in the enforcement environment or a certain shift by private sector entities about their perceptions of what the enforcement environment will be like or a shift towards back toward multilateral approaches as opposed to unilateral sanctions and tariffs. So I think that's something definitely to keep an eye on. Yeah.
0: And I think one, one element of that is whether or not the current administration, either before or after an election, decides they want to make deals in and around some of those uh, authorities, whether it's sanctions or enforcement actions or even criminal cases, right? And the the, the deal-making that goes around that, given the sensibilities of this president who sees himself Mm -hmm. as a deal-maker.
1: So there's the deal-making piece, and then there's also sort of the codification in law piece of, you know, we talked about the last time I was on the podcast about a year ago about... Congress getting more and more involved in sanctions and how it's challenging in a way because it's more difficult to unwind a sanctions program that's been enshrined in law by Congress as opposed to something that's enacted through executive order like a lot of the other sanctions authorities. And so I think watching sort of what gets passed into law by the end of this administration also would be, you know, an interesting space. Perfect.
3: Tommy, what do you think? Dare I be uncreative, but um, <laughs> I, my thought is the coronavirus Interesting. Um, specifically on the impact it's going to have on really everyone's ability to convene, but specifically for for our issues, you know, subject matter experts and their ability to convene around um, international organization meetings, conferences, you know, the, the usual kind of fora in which experts can exchange views and also drive forward progress on either specific deliverables. Or really, just general, you know, policy thought around all of the issues of uh, financial crime compliance. So I'm, I'm interested, scared to see what it means for things like, you know, G20 meetings, um, APEC, um, all of the various expert conferences that happen regionally and globally. Right,
0: and of course you have the Chinese presidency of the Financial Action Task Force, which we're in the middle of.
3: Absolutely. Right.
0: Um, By the way, Tommy's the sort of the quintessential financial diplomat. So there's a good reason why he would bring this up. I think the the convening of experts around the world. We just got back from the G20 in Riyadh. Uh, It's a great example of that. Where it's important to get people together to talk through fundamental issues, whether it's financial integrity, cybersecurity, uh, use of data, all sorts of other issues that affect the global financial community.
2: Eric, how about you? Wild card. Yeah, so I'm actually going to cheat on this one and give you two wild cards. Well, you're, you're following it. Gail's right. example yeah, exactly, here. Yeah, exactly. Cheating is fine. Yeah. <laughs> the first, no, it's not Gail. Yeah.
1: In this narrow circumstance, <laughs> it's acceptable.
2: So the first wild card actually deals with virtual currency and digital assets. Um, and it's the wild card of what the Treasury Department in the United States is going to do for additional potential regulation in this space. Now, the reason I bring this up is. There was congressional testimony a couple weeks ago where Secretary Mnuchin testified to the effect that there was going to be additional regula- regulation coming down or some type of activity coming down, and no one really knows what that's going to look like. And so the question in my mind is, if that is something which is a, a game changer for virtual asset providers, virtual um, VASPs, service providers, excuse me, what is not only – what what are the specific recommendations or – um, regulatory action is going to be, but in addition to that, what's the reaction not just of the market, but then also other jurisdictions? I mean, you've seen just a radical kind of proliferation of effort in the last two years to to, to regulate, you know, virtual asset service providers. You mentioned the FATF interpretive interpretive note, but if the U.S. does something which is pretty aggressive in terms of you know, prohibiting or restricting certain types of transactions with with different you know different types of virtual assets, are other jurisdictions going to follow suit, or is it going to remain simply something that the U.S. alone is doing? So I think that's one interesting space to watch. Yeah, and I think by the way, the
0: uh, countervailing pressure will be from the technology company mm-hmm. companies and the the crypto exchanges uh, that won't want to see you know tighter restrictions and will make the argument that all of this will get offshore, and will flee to uh, other jurisdictions that have
2: lower regulatory barriers. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a push and pull back and forth. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. The second one, which is also something of a push and pull, though maybe within the U.S. government a little bit more than between different private sector actors in the U.S. government, is what happens with Huawei. Huawei obviously is under significant pressure from the United States for a variety of alleged illicit activities, um, sanctions evasion bank fraud there was a a department of justice indictment uh, i think two weeks ago for racketeering but at the same time there have been messages coming from the administration related to not wanting to completely shut off u.s businesses and their efforts to do business with huawei not wanting to completely shut off um, some uh some you know foreign businesses opportunities and efforts to do business with huawei So the big question in my mind is, where does that land? Do we still continue to be in a situation where Huawei is not totally a no-go zone for U.S. companies, but mostly a no-go zone? Will there be leanings either way on that one? And I think that really still has to to shake and settle out.
0: And it's also a question of how independent the enforcement actions and administrative actions are absent sort of the political decision-making and Deal making, right? And I think that's an interesting question where the contours lie with respect to Huawei. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's fantastic. I think that was that was a great spanning the globe of things to watch for and uh, and be on the lookout for in twenty twenty. Hope you enjoyed that. It's a great discussion with Tommy, Eric, and Gail. Thank you very much, you guys. Um, Hope you enjoyed this podcast. We're going to have more podcasts in twenty twenty, diving deeper into some of these issues, talking a bit more about the merger of the Financial Integrity Network with K2 Intelligence, which happened last year. We're going to bring in some experts from K2 to talk about their areas of expertise. And of course, as Gail mentioned, talking about CFIUS and other developments that are central to our business as well as central to issues of regulatory import and national security import as well. Thanks again, guys, for joining us. Hope you enjoyed this edition of FinCast. See you next time. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.